Hello and welcome to The Scan. We're excited to bring you this episode from the George Institute for Global Health. Hello, this is the second episode of our World's Collide mini-series featuring two well-known global health researchers from different parts of the globe, Jaime Miranda from Peru and Shea Abimbola from Nigeria. Each wears a variety of hats, holding a number of positions in different countries. Jaime Miranda is a health systems researcher from Peru. He holds appointments at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Lone Scholar at Harvard T.H. Chan, School of Public Health, Boston, USA, and is the Visiting Professorial Fellow at the George Institute for Global Health Australia. Shea Abimbola is the Health Systems Researcher from Nigeria. Amongst other roles, he is the Prince Claus Chair in the Equity and Development at Utrecht University, the Netherlands, a Senior Lecturer at the School of Public Health, University of Sydney in Australia, and is the Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Global Health. The miniseries features unstructured conversations between Shea and Jaime as they reflect on daily interactions. The conversations offer illuminating insight on navigating work and cultural perspectives. This episode speaks about navigating the global health space as a colored person and decolonizing the academic space. I remember the first time, years ago now, almost 10 years ago, the first time that an indigenous person called me a brother on the bus. It made me feel very different to how I've always felt in Australia when that happened. And when he was leaving as well, he greeted me. Okay. And so it gave me this sense of... of what I physically, the interpretations that, that, that I made of my physical presence in this country that I'm not even aware of. Mm. This has got me thinking um, about what it means to be black in Australia. Do you feel that you get the stare at? No, when, when I first came, when there were far fewer black people in Australia, I got a lot of stare. I got a lot of people just in, from inside the car just looking. And, and I think part of, for me, part of the the challenge and what complicates it for me is that I grew up in a majority, in fact, an absolutely black society. Mm-hmm. And I'm not very aware that I'm black. Like I forget that I look different. I, I, it's not in my consciousness at all. Um, I have to remind myself that, that people must see you differently. And And I suppose we can transform some of that into our academic environment because you're mm-hmm. constantly seeing uh, who are you yeah. and I feel that I have some of that that um, it's not that I don't care but it's not my my entry car where I'm from I was in a meeting yesterday um, mm-hmm. it was a meeting about decolonization mm-hmm. of one of too many meetings that I have to attend on this topic this one I had to attend because the, the organizers are, are my friends and I couldn't say no to them. But anyway, um, a comment came up during that meeting that someone, someone picked up a pattern in the room that those who were white spoke as if they were spoke, speaking for themselves as individuals. And those who were not white 
spoke as if they were speaking for their group, for whatever group they identified with, as an African, as an Asian, you know, as an indigenous person. Th those who were not white spoke about their group, about where they were coming from, and almost sounded as though they were speaking on behalf of their group sometimes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that got the, the room thinking about what, what that meant. Yeah. But, I, but I found it interesting that, that there is also a way in which the self-consciousness of being, of being a minority person also has a way of coloring what people expect that you would say or mm -hmm. how, how people expect that you would enter into a space. Right? So very often I... Um, I enter into lots of discussions methodologically. In other words, I'm thinking about how you think about methods, how you think about research, think about knowledge. And I'm very conscious of how I approach these discussions, that, that whatever I have to say about methods can apply everywhere. In other words, mm. if I'm saying, for example, that there's something problematic about how academic public health works, I want that thing that I'm saying to be so framed that it's applicable in Australia, in the US, in Nigeria, and also between Australia and, say, Papua New Guinea. In mm -hmm. other words, that, that the, the framing is, is almost removed from my identity, as it were. That, that it's first and foremost an intellectual framing, and then my identity or wherever I'm coming from comes second. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's how I'm perceived, but that's how I perceive myself. That's interesting because as, as we speak, I, I'm, I'm about to submit a, a grant next week yeah. uh, to the USNIH, and you, you follow the guidelines, and I'm, I'm, I'm leading the writing, I'm organizing the VA, I conceive the put-together team, and I have to answer this question of uh, have the LMIC investigators been involved on in the development? Mm. And uh, that's something <laughs> that I... How do you have, I mean, and yes, and, uh, and it's because we produce this science to be seen by others, right? And, and uh, how do we break these, these perceptions that, um, that people from our countries uh, are not able to produce research, but are more sort of on the companionship, right? Mm -hmm. If you read the story and the narrative, it's, it's us, it's still, because it, goes to, it's, it will be reviewed by these experts in the US, yeah. we have to make visible something that for me is invisible, that I shouldn't be declaring, right? In, yeah. your, in your own imagination, you've assumed away all those layers because they, 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 they don't, they are not for you. They, they, they are not barriers or issues for you. But for, for, a, for a tourist or for, for a foreign researcher, they are the issues. About three or four weeks ago, I had this meeting with, um, a researcher at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine who has very luckily gotten a hand on a data, a, a type of data that I wish I could get my hands on, or at least other people would get their hands on, which is um, the reviews of grants, grant submission to a panel. Mm -hmm. Someone gave this researcher the reviewer comments, and she then decided to analyze them and, and write a paper out of it. And she was going to use a framework that I had just developed along with a colleague um, to analyze the, the assumptions implicit in the 
review and assessment of the applications, which was interesting. And one of the things you brought up was exactly almost in the same words as you've expressed it, which is this idea that the person assessing the grant is so different from the applicant and the applicant's context that the applicant has to make visible things that they would not need to make visible if the assessor were from their context. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. And they would also be judged by, by the assessor. They would be judged by this foreign distant assessor in a different way to how the assessor would judge someone who is safe from the UK applying to do work in Afghanistan, as an example. Right. Now, the assessor understands the fellow UK person applying to do work in Afghanistan. Right. There are certain things that that person from the UK will say and write and present that would make sense to the fellow UK assessor that would make mm-hmm. them more likely to be scored higher than an Afghanistan person studying Afghanistan and right and making a pitch about studying their own country because because you present everything differently but the system is set up for the UK person right mm-hmm. so when you read the the, the the criteria for assessment it was set up for the UK person to apply to do work in Afghanistan not for the Afghani person to do work in their own country. So when you are there applying to do work in your own country, you are assessed differently. In fact, you are assessed worse than someone coming from outside to do work in your country because they present it the way that the scoring system has been set up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Because yeah. I wish, for example, that the MRC or the UKRI, that these guys would allow people to actually analyze the reviewer comments on people's grants. I'd love yeah. to go, because I, I think we can't, you know, all these invisible injustices, you, you can't undo them until you make them visible. Because again, many people who are assessing these grants are not conscious of what they are doing. So the, the system has been set up in a particular way that they are seen to be neutral. Mm, mm. Right? And then they, they do their work without even considering that this thing actually is set up in a particular way that disadvantages some people. But you don't know that because you're, yeah. you're, 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 you're on the side yeah. of the divide. So, so in the last sort of six, seven, eight months, since, since late 2020, I've been involved with a group of people trying to address the issue of parachutes or helicopter research. Mm-hmm. And the strategy um, that we, we, are, we arrived at was essentially to include um, a mandatory small reporting requirement to accompany every manuscript submitted from an international partnership that includes um, high-income country and lower-middle-income country researchers. Um, and, and, and these questions are basically questions about sort of how, how did you share resources? How did you share capacity? How did, what, what is the legacy of your projects in the country where it was conducted? Who decided what the research question was? Who decided what method to use? How was the result used locally? Sort of things that, that ought to be, of course, part of the consideration of every research project, but mm-hmm. in th- things that we, I think, assume people think about, but people don't necessarily think about. But essentially, to create something that makes people think about these things. Mm-hmm. And the, the goal is that it then becomes things people think about preemptively, knowing that, yes. of course, they will have to declare it at some point where this came from. And that that could then hopefully change the norms um, uh, that, that govern international partnerships in global health. So, so to, to the politics, so one of the things that, that one, of, one of the clear um, 
requirement to my mind for this being effective is that a number of journals adopt it. Mm-hmm, like you, mm-hmm. want, you want a critical mass, even if it's just five, six big journals or, or many more, but smaller journals. So you, you want a good number of journals to sort of say, we're going to do this. Um, and because that's, that's where the politics comes in. Each of these types of journals require different strategies to, okay. to speak yeah, to them yeah. and to convince them. Because for some people, you just have to get the editor-in-chief on board. For some, you have to find a, an argument that would work for the editor-in-chief to convince the broader editorial board to sign on. And right. I'm waiting for some. Some have already said yes. Um, some are discussing it. Um, so we'll see. I'm finishing a piece now on... on... On, on, it's not on partnerships, but it's more on, on how research influences policy, right? So, okay, I mean, you're doing a lot of research and you have the question. Uh, uh, so how is it influencing policy? And then well, the reflection is, do I have to do everything then? So I have to train people, get the money, do the research. And my short is this saying in Spanish, it's saying zapatero a sus zapatos. So it's either a shoemaker to the shoes, right? Uh, uh, but also pushing a little bit as to, okay, that's not enough, but also let's set the expectations right. How does your research influence policy? Mm. To me, I don't want to get away from the question, but to me, we have to put this in context. And the context is researchers are a key player in informing science and researchers mm. are partners in producing this together. Mm. But it's not your particular research output that will inform any given policy. If anything, I, I call it like the maybe the knowledge um, memory, like uh, because there's so many volatile people rotating through these positions yeah. that you need to facilitate it. See, see, I have a set of reflections on that. Um, what you just said now, someone in the Rotary Club um, that actually initially sponsored me to come to Australia, um, someone said something about the civil service. And how the civil service in Australia pretty much functions. That if you removed the government, that is the politicians, for months, that everything will continue to function as if nothing has happened. <laughs> that, that the politicians are not very important <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. Um, that, that, that the people whose faces you see, whose name you see next to policies, but the people who actually cook it and make it function, mm-hmm. they are the civil servants. Right, and, right. And, 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 and that's how the system works. And it just made me think about um, what it means to think in terms of influencing those civil servants mm-hmm. compared to thinking in terms of influencing politicians. There was this program at the University of Chicago about um, the training of judges on economics. And you know, the University of Chicago economics is very sort of market economics, very liberal, mm-hmm. neoliberal economics. And they have this program where they actually are funded to train judges. And what this does, and there's evidence to, to, to prove it, is that it biases the judges in favor of the market. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, so you have generations of judges. These are not politicians. They are not the ones making policy. 
but, but they are the ones setting the rules by which the policies are made. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and they're the ones who get to decide if something is, is legal or illegal. And I always ask myself, who should I be influencing now? So the, the question for them is, what do you need? Mm. How can I help you? Mm. And many times it's not your research results. Mm. Sometimes they may require other things. Sometimes they require companions. But, but it's the human nature. So, so this idea that the research is influenced policy is not because of your product. Mm. It's because there's a different set of skills and, and framings of the problems that can yeah. help that. And has been striking me as well about American writers generally, especially those from the South, is how you could read their work and have no idea that they were writing about a country that has oppressed people for centuries. <laughs> like, you would have no idea. If you read, including American literary writers, not just the economists, literary mm-hmm. writers, they write, they write novels about cities and towns in the US without a black person present. And you know, these are Southern, these are, these are southern writers. Tennessee Williams, these, these are Southern writers. It, it was, it's impossible. <laughs> right? And, and it's the same thing happens in, in economics, that they're writing these theories and they're describing America's system as a liberal system built on freedom. Mm. And it's that system that has subjugated and oppressed people for centuries. And, and ne- that never features. <laughs> what is freedom for, right? Mm. What, is the, what is liberty for? Um, yeah. and, and it's also something that came up in, in, in the COVID uh, lockdown situation in Australia where politicians were describing the end of lockdown as freedom. We're going to give you freedom now. I'm like, what, what, what does freedom mean for you? You know, is it freedom to die? <laughs> Sometimes you, <laughs> you actually get freedom to die. Um, so in other words, what does, freedom, what does freedom buy you? What is the goal of freedom? Right. And, and this is where I really admire the, the work of um, this economist called Amatya Sen, who is Indian, and he describes things in terms of capabilities, right? He mm-hmm. sort of he says that even when you are free, the freedom is to get to capabilities to live, in quote-unquote, your best life. In other words, freedom is nothing if it doesn't give you guaranteed capabilities. Right? Mm-hmm. And everything else we're doing with public policy, like if you can think of it in terms of capabilities, even health, in terms of your health so, so that you can enjoy life, so that you can do things, to think more in terms of the things that health, freedom, wealth allows you to do, instead of mm. thinking of them as end points in themselves. Um, yeah. That, that, that's, that's his argument, um, which I find useful often. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Scan. In the next episode, She and Jaime will reflect on the editorial decisions of academic journals. Make sure you subscribe to The Scan so you don't miss an episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We can't wait to bring you all the latest news and research in global health.